Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. NPR Music's tiny desk isn't just any old office desk. It's become a stage for artists like Adele, John Legend, Casey Musgraves, The National, and of course, T-Pain without autotune. If you're an undiscovered musician, you could play there too. Just submit a video to the Tiny Desk Contest for a chance to launch your path to stardom. Find out how to enter at npr.org slash tinydeskcontest. Cool, we good. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, and Happy New Year. This is our first weekly roundup of 2016, and I almost can't believe I'm saying it. This is the year we've been talking about for a year, and it's finally here. And people are actually going to start voting soon. As a result, the race for president has gotten a lot more intense. But before we get to that and President Obama's executive actions on guns and a certain candidate's interesting choice of footwear, introductions. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent for NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. And coming to you from drizzly, foggy, but nonetheless uh, pr- pretty beautiful Ames, Iowa today. I'm Don Gagne, national political correspondent. And I'm with Don in Iowa, and I'm Susan Davis, and I cover Congress. And I know that you guys aren't just there for the weather. Uh, you are there because you are covering the ever-intensifying presidential campaign. The caucuses are just 25 days away. But here in Washington, the big political news this week was President Obama's executive actions to tighten up what's known as the gun show and internet sales loophole to try to increase the number of people who would go through background checks before getting guns. And as he was announcing it at the White House earlier this week, he started crying. From every family who, who never imagined that their loved one would be taken from our lives by a bullet from a gun. And he's wiping a tear away at this point. Every time I think about those kids, it gets me mad. He, of course, was talking about the kids in the Sandy Hook shooting in Newtown. And even before he made the announcement and immediately after, the response was some bizarre combination of this won't do anything, gun control advocates being excited. And here he comes. He's coming to take our guns away. And the thing with that, as someone who was not really focusing on that news this week, from the chatter that I saw and heard, I couldn't tell what he actually did. And there was enough conversation on both sides of the issue that you could kind of think that he did a lot or a little. I think that the reality is it was pretty modest. I also think, you know, what what the president was trying to do here partly is this was a PR effort in some ways to draw attention to the fact that the only way we can really change gun laws in this country is if Congress acts. And there's not been any substantial gun legislation that has moved through Congress since 1994 when they did the assault weapon ban, which has since expired. There has been failed efforts to respond to the shooting of Gabby Giffords, the congresswoman from Arizona who was at this event. There was an effort after Newtown to enhance background checks, which they tried and failed to do in the Senate. And then they have never attempted again to act on gun legislation since Newtown. Democrats lost the Senate. So now Congress is now fully controlled by Republicans and Republican leaders and Republican rank and file members have made very clear that they're not interested in taking up gun legislation. And what Republicans will say and what they have said to the president is none of the things that you have suggested we do would have prevented any of the gun tragedies that you reference. 
That is their argument. And that where Republicans have tried to move this debate, probably to not great success because that's not what we're still talking about, is mental health. And I think what the president would say is, yeah, maybe this wouldn't have prevented San Bernardino or Oregon or any of these mass shootings. But his his general feeling is we have to do something. And this is this modest thing is the only thing he can do that. And he can push a conversation. So he has an editorial in The New York Times this morning where he says that he will not support or campaign for any candidate, even in his own party, who does not support common sense gun reform. He is trying to push this issue, as Sue, as you said, get people talking about it. Part of that is last night, along with CNN, the president held a town hall meeting where he had a conversation about guns, which is an interesting conversation because CNN invited people who disagree with him. And he got some real pushback, including from a rape survivor who says she has a gun to protect herself and her family. I have been unspeakably victimized once already, and I refuse to let that happen again to myself or my kids. So why can't your administration see that these restrictions that you're putting to make it harder for me to own a gun or harder for me to take that where I need to be is actually just making my kids and I less safe? Well, Kimberly, first of all, obviously, uh, it, you know, your story is horrific. Uh, so the do these new gun laws make it harder for someone like her to own a gun? It seems highly unlikely that it would. Um, okay. You know, the real issue here is that law-abiding people already go through background checks, yeah. generally speaking. Um, and she no doubt went through a background check to buy the gun that she has. Um, what I also think is really, I mean, we have to talk about the politics of guns, right? So, right. one, the hard part the president has and Democrats have is this is not a debate that Republicans want to run away from. They embrace this gun debate because... What have elections taught us? What do we know from past elections that have hinged on the gun issue? You can't really point to a Republican who's lost an election because he supports gun rights and because he's opposed gun control. You can't. We don't. There's no example of that. So but when you they can. See, but you can point to Democrats who have lost because exactly. they support yeah. gun control. Exactly. It's a much more tricky issue for Democrats, particularly. Let's look at the map right now. Places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, New Hampshire that have significant number of gun owners, hunters and where gun rights are a very tricky issue for Democrats. And recent elections have shown us that both on a state level and a national level that what I think Obama is trying to do and what he said there is, hey, if you're angry about gun laws in this country, you need to show up at the polls. And Tim, you say that the president's doing this to start this dialogue kind of even beyond the relatively small things that he did. I can tell you, I've been going to Republican mm -hmm. presidential campaign events all year. That dialogue has been happening yeah. all year. And it is always President Obama has a plan to seize your guns. The Democrats are making a blatant grab for your guns. And that was the immediate reaction this week as well. Uh, yes. Marco Rubio's got it in, in an ad. Uh, the president's response to the Terrorist Act in San Bernardino is to take away your guns. Ted Cruz Ted talking Cruz, about yeah. he's going to seize your guns. And that that's not what is in this action that no. the president has taken. But that is the dialogue on the Republican side here. Sue and Don, you are coming to us from Ames, Iowa today. And uh, you have been chasing the candidates around the state, the, primarily the Republican candidates this week. Texas Senator Ted Cruz is on an epic bus tour 
Uh, what, what do you take away from that? It is fair to say at this point, and again, that's an important qualifier at this point because Iowa can be fluid. A lot of people make up their minds late. But Senator Ted Cruz is the story in Iowa right now. He not only is appealing in a very aggressive, very direct way for that big block of evangelical Christian conservative voters uh, who participate in the Republican caucuses. He is doing that with what, uh, as, as best we can tell, is a very impressive organization to make sure people know how to caucus, know where to caucus, and actually turn out to vote. Yeah. So I was on the Ted Cruz bus tour. He's through Iowa all this week. He's he's going through the weekend in, um, he's making 28 stops across the state. And you know, one of the things that really struck out to us when we were with him on the road is he's making a very clear overture to a certain kind of voter in Iowa. And I think we have some tape that might best explain that. If we allow non-believers to elect our leaders, we shouldn't be surprised when our government doesn't reflect our values. Just one minute each day to lift up in prayer this country, that the awakening, that the spirit of revival that is sweeping this country, that it continue, and in particular that conservatives continue to unite. We have to bring back to the polls the millions of conservatives who stayed home. We have to awaken and energize the body of Christ. It's like a televangelist. So Ted, yes. So and that a televangelist is a great word to put it. So let's remember that in recent caucuses, evangelical voters make up about half of the people that show up at caucus on caucus night. And Ted Cruz is very aggressively going for the evangelical vote. At every stop, he would cite scripture. He would say, I have, I'm asking you to do three things. I'm asking you to join our campaign. I'm asking you to show up in caucus, and I'm asking you to pray. The other calculation of the Cruz campaign is they, and I talked to supporters too who think this, that even though Trump is really still running neck and neck with him in the polls, that they think that a conscious, civic-minded Iowan, even though they like Donald Trump, when they show up and they have to cast a ballot, that they're going to go with Cruz. You know, that they like Trump. They, they've they liked what he said. They've said they want to support him, but they take their vote seriously. And it's going to go to someone that is a more organized candidate. And his team seems to really understand what it takes. And what's the number? So 6,000 volunteers on the ground in Iowa? Yeah. They've filled two dorms full of volunteers from wow. out of state who wow. are here just to get him to win. They say they have 157,000 volunteers nationwide. His operation is real. He has a real operation. Uh, whether that can deliver him a victory, we don't know. But he at this moment, Cruz seems to be enjoying the most momentum in this hmm. race. We've talked about Cruz and Trump, and and they are clearly you could say the front runners in Iowa and and beyond. What about the the other ones? Uh, it seems like there's something of a circle circular firing squad going on here with uh, uh, Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush and 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 John Kasich and some of these other candidates, uh, Chris Christie. You would call them the establishment candidates. Right. They're all going after each other, right? They wouldn't call themselves the establishment oh, right, candidates. Right, right. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> they don't like that word, but we but that even even voters here I talk to use the word establishment. So it's they're proven conservatives yes, with executive they're equally experience. Proven conservatives. Oh. <laughs> so yes, so this is great, right? So why are they here? Why are they investing? Why are they trying to win? And why are they clubbing one another? Yeah, and out why of the air? and why yes. aren't they going after Ted Cruz? Why aren't they going after the front runners? Why aren't they trying to take them down? Why are they the second tier battle? And one of the things that I think is interesting about Iowa is there's more than one ticket out of here or there can be. You can even losing Iowa can still give your campaign some momentum. The question is, all right, so if Trump and Cruz are battling it out for one and two, who's number three? And 
we don't know the answer to that question. Rubio's in contention. Carson, by the numbers, is still in contention. Bush has spent more money in Iowa than any other candidate on the airwaves, Hmm. even though he's in single digits in the polls. So what does a third place victory mean here? And the fact that New Hampshire is so close and it's a very different electorate, if Marco Rubio in theory, can have a really strong third place showing in Iowa. Is the headline coming out of Iowa, Ted Cruz wins Iowa, Marco Rubio maybe becoming the establishment favorite. Or Rubio, surprise number three finish. Yeah. Uh, gives him momentum finish. into New Hampshire. Exceeds yeah. expectations. I think like, exactly. for a lot of exactly. candidates, the best headline they could get is exceeds expectations. So it's like it's the Iowa tango, right? You don't wanna <laughs> you don't wanna look like you're trying to win it, but a number three victory here could potentially be a really potent factor for whoever the more establishment type candidate who they're still trying to figure out who that's going to be. This reminds me of marching band when our motto was, we're not the worst. We're not the worst. We knew we could never be first, but we were like, we're not the worst. (laughs) Um, On to the Democrats now. um, And and things are heating up a little bit over there, too. Um, I spent part of my week uh, following Bill Clinton around New Hampshire. Oh, yeah. The big dog came out, but he was on the leash, as they say. Um, Bill Clinton came out to campaign for his wife, Hillary Clinton, and delivered the message the campaign wanted to be delivered with somehow not seeming uh, like he was trying too hard. She makes something good happen wherever she is, whatever she's doing. She just makes things happen. So I have not seen Bill Clinton on the on in live yet in 2016. But in 2012 and 28, when he was campaigning, he drew like really crazy crowds and was still this like great. I mean, what was the crowd like there? Is like Bill Clinton still this really motivating figure for Democrats? Yes and no. He drew about 700 people to the first event I went to, um, maybe 500 or or a little bit less to the other one. But it was standing room only, people standing in line outside. People came from neighboring states. Of course, when you're in New Hampshire, everything's a neighboring state. And people there were really enthused and excited. But I would say this isn't the fiery Bill Clinton that I remember from 2008. I mean, he's eight years older than he was Well, how long was the speech for one? Because he's known for these long, long, (laughs) epic, epic speeches. Actually, he kept it to about 30 minutes for each one. Okay. Uh, He he was very much um, in control of things. And then as Bill Clinton was coming back on the scene, Donald Trump and and some other Republicans were tweeting and and bringing up uh, issues about uh, Bill Clinton's past indiscretions and uh, saying that Hillary Clinton was implicit in sexual harassment and worse because she stood by her man. And reporters again and again tried to get Bill Clinton to weigh in on this, shouting from rope lines, what do you think of Trump kind of a thing? And he just didn't engage. Do we think Hmm. that's fair? I mean, it's going to keep coming up. It's coming up. Like, I've seen arguments on both sides. Well, it's, you know, it's not her. She shouldn't be blamed for what the husband did. And then other folks are saying, well, it's fair game. Does that argument even matter? I don't know. Bill Clinton's a big boy. Uh, Yeah, I think the Clintons are very uh, battle tested in this in this regard. And my sense from from them is they're not planning to engage on this. Yeah, they are perfectly happy to attack Donald Trump about policy on Mexicans or immigration. But he didn't engage. He didn't go directly. What he did do was was talk about how Hillary Clinton has the experience. She can get things done. She has the temperament. That was a word he used. So everything was 
by reflection. It wasn't it wasn't direct. What's so weird with this whole thing for me is that they all used to be friends. Like the Clintons went to Trump's wedding to Melania. <laughs> yeah. um, Trump and said that Hillary would make a good president as far back as 08. Um, I think I've seen photos of like Bill and Donald Trump golfing together like they used to be friends. And I think their daughters are friends. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this, like, if you are a, a cynic when it comes to politics, this just makes you believe the worst about politics again and again. It's like, is it all just for show? <laughs> oh, there's a big show going on. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tam, you were there with Clinton, Bill Clinton. Um, but what what's your sense of the Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and let's throw Martin O'Malley in there as well, uh, race at, at at this point? I mean, it feels like it's narrow in New Hampshire, and she's got a maybe a sort of kind of comfortable lead here in Iowa, but Iowa's Iowa, so you never know what's going to happen. What's your sense of it? You know, as you said about the Republican field, everything is very fluid, but I would not be surprised one way or another if she won Iowa or if she lost Iowa, if Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire or lost New Hampshire. Um, I think that both campaigns at this point are playing an expectations game because expectations are so important in these first two primaries. Um, and, and both campaigns are now, I think you can hear the, the the closing arguments, if you will, starting to take shape, where Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton are, are talking about how she would lead, how she would govern. She's putting out all of these white papers and issue papers about uh, various issues where, where she's offering policy proposals. Um, Bernie Sanders is talking about how he would do in a head-to-head race against a Donald Trump or a Ted Cruz and saying, look how well I would perform against them. They're, they're both making what is an electability argument. And, you know, just like if Hillary Clinton doesn't win Iowa or doesn't win Iowa by a lot, if Bernie Sanders doesn't win New Hampshire, which is a neighboring state, or doesn't win it by a lot, uh, yeah. that could be very problematic for him. Tam, here's what feels interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I- I- Iowa is upon us now, just just weeks away, and New Hampshire comes eight days after that. And the Republicans are engaging in all-out hand-to-hand combat going after one another. And you don't feel like Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are going after one another, even though the polls, as you say, in in, in Iowa and in New Hampshire show that either of them could win either of these states. Well, the big throwdowns this week on the Democratic side are Bernie Sanders saying, my Wall Street reform is tougher than your Wall Street reform. And Hillary Clinton's campaign saying, no, 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 no. You weren't even talking about some of these other Wall Street reforms that I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Before we can get to Can't Let It Go, the part of the show where we all share something that we just can't stop thinking about this week. Next week, we will all be doing a lot of thinking about the state of the union or rather, One man will really be doing a lot of thinking about the State of the Union. President Obama on Tuesday will be giving his final State of the Union address. And he uh, he got a jump on it with this uh, YouTube video. What free moments I can take right now. I'm working on my State of the Union address. It's my last one. And as I'm writing, I keep thinking about the road that we've traveled together these past seven years. The people I've met, the stories that you've shared, the remarkable things you've done to make change happen, to recover from crisis, and set this country on a better, stronger course for tomorrow. Who do you think's happier that it's his last address, President Obama or congressional Republicans? 
Maybe his speech writers. <laughs> or Michelle or his Obama. Writers. Although I think Obama writes a lot, of, or at least has a lot of input on his State of the Union speech, right? Very much so. Yeah. So, Don, you have covered another president's final State of the Union. Mm-hmm. What is this like? It does really signal that the last year and the final stages of a presidency have begun, right? And it also signals that time when people just start paying less and less attention to the guy who's in the Oval Office because everybody's focus is on the race to replace that person. And and this year is certainly no different. But there was also a sense with George W. Bush that this war – Uh, had taken its toll on the country. It had made him so unpopular, so intensely unpopular, the Iraq war, but also the Afghanistan war was still going on as well. But but really, yes, the, the, the Iraq war was the thing that drove his approval ratings down. But uh, but there's just no denying that it signals the beginning of the end of this presidency and people are already you know turning their attention elsewhere. What I've seen from Obama in the last like two weeks or so is this really kind of different Obama for me, like this emo Obama. We saw him get teared up when Aretha was singing at the Kennedy Center. We saw him cry this week with the guns. Is he in this more open emotional state? I think and, he's been and, like, like that. I think he's been like that for the last year, yeah. at least. And, and, and like, he has talked about, oh, well, my daughters are going to be going away to college and and his presidency is ending. I think he's looking back a lot. I think he's I think he's definitely in a different state. I feel like I'm seeing a broader range of emotions from him for a lot of the early the part cool of the The cool collected Obama. Yeah, like he was keeping it all in for a long time. Yeah, he's not keeping it all yeah. in anymore. Um, Sue, what are you looking for in this address? You know, I... State of the Union addresses, presidents don't normally use the State of the Union address to talk about other presidents. If anything, I'm interested to hear how much of it is a look back at his term and defending the decisions he made. I'm certain we're going to hear things about uh, the health care law and defending that and the importance of that and the scope of that and uh, gay marriage rulings. And I think he's going to try and swing for the high notes that this is going to be a both like a retrospective and a greatest hits and let me m- remind you of the things we've done under my term what i'm interested to hear particularly as a congress reporter is what are the carrots and what are the sticks two things that come to mind are uh, criminal sentencing reform that there is a rare and strange bedfellows of political allies on this that think we need to change the way we do sentencing laws in this country. And there is also an incredibly large trade agreement hanging out there known as the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which sounds incredibly dull, but is incredibly important and would be a huge feather in the president's cap if he can get it done before he leaves office. So carrots and sticks is what I listen for. What, where, is he, where does he want to go to f- go to war with Republicans in his last year in office? And where do they think, hey... Maybe we can get one. We got one more, you know, encore in us. Okay, now it's time for the thing that we call Can't Let It Go, where we all share something we can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Sam Sanders? I'm first? Yeah. What, oh. <laughs> what can you not let go? Um. So these campaign ads that are coming out, I can't get over the, like, dude voice in them. <laughs> In a world. It's like that same thing from like movie trailers that it's so ominous and dark 
and like intense. Um, Trump had it in his most recent TV, his first TV ad, actually. We can play a bit of that now. The politicians can pretend it's something else, but Donald Trump calls it radical Islamic terrorism. That's a low voice. Coming Sunday. Yeah. And it's very like movie trailer, which is just weird to it, me. It, it is so ubiquitous. And I, I, I did a piece on these ads uh-huh. that we were watching this week in Iowa because we are now at the stage of the caucuses where you're just saturated. Every commercial break is now loaded with these commercials. And I swear they've got the same guy. Same uh, dude. <laughs> in a world. Working, One man for runs for campaigns. president. And you've also got the same composer doing yeah, well, the very ominous, bum, 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 bum. You know, it's all, it's all but Jaws, you know? Yeah. Uh, you expect the ads at the end to say, a James Cameron production. <laughs> Michael Bay blowing <laughs> yeah, stuff up. Yeah, coming next September. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sue Davis, what can't you let go this week? So what I can't let go is Ben Carson and the saddest real-life episode of Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader that's happened <laughs> oh in the presidential God. campaign trail. Ben Carson, uh, who's, you know, already struggling a little bit in Iowa, he's a little air has come out of his balloon, was at a Cedar Rapids school, and he was in a crowd of 500 kids, and he was trying to make a point about how, you know, even not the smartest kid in the class can still go to the great heights in life, and he says, you know, I was a fifth grade student. I was a horrible student. Anybody here in fifth grade? grade? Who's the worst student? Who's the worst student? (laughs) No. Kids turned and pointed at this one student and the whole room erupted in laughter. And, you know, obviously he's got reporters covering with him. It was tweeted about. It was caught on tape. Um, and he had to, you know, he, he kind of recovered. He said, look, I was not the smartest kid in my fifth grade class. I went on to become a neurosurgeon, but it was too late. And after the moment, he met with the kid. And I think he, he, he tried to recover from it and say, you know, and he told the kid, I hope you too grow up to be a neurosurgeon. But can you just think of a sadder That's really moment? Sad. I think he couldn't think of this as anything other than a self-deprecating moment. Yeah. You know? Uh, I was the worst kid in my class, and he's just making chit-chat the way a candidate does, and he unleashed something that that he at least couldn't foresee. And kids are literal. You know, he said, who's the the dumbest kid in the class? And they were like, oh, it's Billy. It's it's like, (laughs) don't ask the kids question. No audience participation. Don Gaudier, yeah, you you have something entertaining as as your can't let it go. So here's here's kind of my approach to life when I'm on the campaign trail, right? You got to chase the candidates. Uh, you got to go to the events. You got to see the speeches. You got to talk to the voters. But I also do this thing where you got to see, you have to see the treasures that any community has, right? You have to go to their art museum and look at the Edward Hopper painting or the Grant Wood painting. Uh, you have to look at the Buddy Holly Memorial in the field where his plane went down. And last night uh, we found an Iowa treasure, uh, Caucus the Musical. No. Caucus no, no, the Musical. Stop. Get out. No. <laughs> it is an original production written by an Iowa native who uh, who had a career on, on, on Broadway and in, in the entertainment industry in California. He moved back to his hometown of Des Moines about a dozen years ago now, and they've been staging this production. And let's give you just a little taste of one song. These are three typical Iowa caucus participants singing about the caucuses. <laughs> Newt Gingrich cleaned my chimney flues. Joe Biden polished all my shoes. George Bush took me to Dairy Queen. I got massaged by Howard Dean. Ralph Nader tuned up my old car. Don Edwards tuned up my guitar. Mitt Romney taught my kids to swim. Bill Clinton gave my Bush a trim. 
Whoa. Yard nope. work, fellas. He did yard work. Whoa. <laughs> I can't. I can't even. I've lost the ability to even. So there's Iowa nice and there's Iowa naughty, right? Or, 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 or Iowa body. And, you know, a lot of it kind of walks, walks that line. But, but it's kind of what happened. Wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Sam is losing it. No, I just like. Caucus the musical has like. <laughs> I just screwed some things up in the studio. I just broke the studio. Hold on, let me me compose myself. Don, go back a little bit. I'm going to stop breaking the desk. Is there like a plot line? Is there like a love interest? uh, A hero's quest and journey? Like what's going on with this? It does does not have the love interest, but it, it, it is basically the story of a typical Iowa family that is identified by a New York Times reporter as the classic Iowa caucus story. I won't tell you how it ends, uh, but there is one candidate who is a lot like a certain candidate who's running for president this year, and his name in the show is Ronald Ronald Blunt. Blunt. And he he has a way of dominating the play, and the actor who plays him is a great singer, and uh, that's the thing I can't let go of right now. (laughs) Did you guys like it? We saw a rehearsal. Okay. And I can tell you it looks like it's great fun. And we should say, at its heart, it is a celebration of the Iowa caucuses and the history and the importance in the state. So it's it kind of reminded me a little bit of Book of Mormon, if you've seen that, where it kind of like really makes fun of something. But at its heart, it's very respectful of it. And it shatters the stereotype a bit, which is uh, yeah. something we always like to do when we're here. Um, okay. Now it's my turn. Uh, oh, now- I know what you want to talk about. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the high-heeled booties. Wait. Yes. Like boots or high heels? Well, someone has dubbed these high-heeled booties. Who, wear, who wears those? Marco Rubio what? has been seen wearing boots. <laughs> I need to Google this. You do. You do. <laughs> he, it's all the over. The image tells the do story. Do I Google high-heeled booties? You probably you could. Google Just... Marco Rubio booties, you will find it. <laughs> yes. So Marco Rubio was spotted wearing boots that are like ankle boots um, that seem to have uh, something in uh, near a two-inch heel. Easily. Uh, he uh, was widely mocked on the internet, widely mocked by other campaigns. <gasps> Those are Prince boots. Yes. Those yeah. are Prince beetle boots. boots. I'm the oldest one at the table here, and to me, those are beetle boots. I remember seeing ads uh, for the Beatles in the 1960s with George Harrison wearing those exact same boots. I'm fine so. with those boots. I'm, they're cute. <laughs> I, I, are I, they presidential? Uh, they're cute. <laughs> they, they are, as one person called them, shagalicious. If the purple one can wear boots like this, the artist formerly known as Prince, <laughs> then anybody can. Will they help him win, or will well, he be so... the candidate formerly known as Rubio? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, well, so there is the matter. How of, tall is he? Exactly. That he's is five, the nine. that is the matter. Oh, he's five nine. Well, yeah. he according to Google is five foot ten. Sue, you and I have seen him up close in the hallways of Congress. I would not peg him at five ten. I would not. I am five nine, and I feel like I'm oh, right about tall, the Susan. same. Yeah, I'm tall, and I'm. I would say I'm about. The, I've stood near him cl- enough times. He may be five ten. But he's 5'10 when you're no. like, your posture's really, really good, you know, when you're well, standing up but perfectly straight. But here's the thing. You could just put lifts in the shoe. Then you don't see those. Why yeah. didn't you do that? Well, these shoes are very stylish. Uh, maybe no, like maybe he didn't realize he was wearing high heel boots. Oh, <laughs> the, the point How here, did these shoes get on my feet? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but maybe his wife bought them for him. I mean, I buy my husband's stuff, and sometimes he did just puts it on. Did you buy him high heel boots? 
No, but he bought me some really like, hot boots this week. <laughs> to Snow me, boots. those boots, though, are like, they are like Miami stylish, Miami right? Like, I think stylish. part of what made it look like the image struck with us is he's in like snowdrifts of New Hampshire stepping onto his campaign bus, and the style of those boots say Miami. Do they have a side zipper? They do, yes. yes. Now, his campaign, one, totally objects to the focus on his They're footwear. very shiny. And and I think it is fair to say that there are more pressing concerns in this world, in this country, than what the heck some dude is wearing on his feet, even if he I'm is I'm going to push back the on the Rubio campaign on that, too, because I would say, think about how much we subject women wow. to yes. criticism mm-hmm. over... I mean, remember when Hillary put a scrunchie in her hair? I think it led, you know, when she had the hair bands and the way we, the way we hyper-focus yeah, the on the way women are dressed in she- politics. So, you know what? Maybe, maybe male politicians can take a little fashion scrutiny from time to time, too. So Fitz News thinks that they're either Giorgio Brutini boots or Margiela boots. Well, his campaign claims that they are floor shimes, which I've not been able to independently verify that they're floor shimes, but, <laughs> but I don't think that you'd make that up. Yeah. yeah. And that is all the time we have. Okay. <laughs> Shut her down. For today's NPR Politics <laughs> Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back here next Wednesday with a breakdown of President Obama's final State of the Union address. And until then, let us know if you like the show and let us know what you think of the boots. Uh, Find us on Twitter and catch our political coverage on your local public radio station as well. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Don Gagne, theater critic. I'm Susan Davis, and I cover Congress. (laughs) And we'll see you next time on the NPR Politics Podcast.